0: Talking DLD Developmental Language Disorder
1: 1 in 14 DLD The DLD Project
0: The Talking DLD Podcast
1: Brought to you by The DLD Project Hi everyone, welcome to episode 3 of The Talking DLD Podcast. My name's Sean Ziganfuse, and I'm one of the co-founders of The DLD Project. Our special guest this month is Erin West who is the NDIS and Practice Advisor at Speech Pathology Australia. Throughout this year, Speech Pathology Australia has been advocating to the National Disability Insurance Agency in Australia, more commonly known as the NDIA. Speech Pathology Australia has been particularly pushing for access to the National Disability Insurance Scheme, or NDIS, for people with DLD. In this episode, Erin shares Speech Pathology Australia's experience engaging with the NDIA, and provides practical tips on how to lodge your next application. Welcome to Erin West from Speech Pathology Australia, who's here on the Talking DLD podcast with me today. Erin, I might get you to start by just quickly introducing yourself.
0: Sure. So I am Erin West, and I am the NDIS and Practice Advisor at Speech Pathology Australia. So essentially my role is to answer questions about the NDIS and try and keep up to date with all of the changes um, and to help uh, speech pathologists who are members of the organisation, but also members of the public uh, with kind of their queries and see what uh, we can produce, I guess, to uh, help members to navigate the NDIS.
1: Awesome. And I know that particularly people who are listening uh, to the Talking DLD podcast um, and are often families or health Mm -hmm. professionals with questions. So I think it is going to be great to really get your opinion and insight because obviously you've got an amazing amount of experience, um, both as a professional as well as your role at uh, Speech Pathology Australia. So thank you so much for joining us today. I think we'll jump straight into it because I know that... Particularly families will be interested to hear what you have to say. Um, mm-hmm. Because we do hear, um, well, we have heard from quite a large number of families that they've had difficulties in applying to NDIS when their child has developmental language disorder. Mm-hmm. Is there, what is it about developmental language disorder that makes the application process potentially difficult or different for people with DLD?
0: So I'm kind of going to split this into two groups. Um, Go for it. Yeah, we'll have a chat about the EI sort of side of things and then the over seven side of things. So for um, under sevens, for the EI process, one of the issues is that people are often trying to go under developmental delay Mm -hmm. because that way they don't have to prove disability. And that's really what it comes down to, is that um, DLD is not necessarily seen as a disability by the NDIA. Um, It is by Speech Quality Australia. That's our position, that it is a disability and that it is lifelong um, and has significant functional impacts. So we believe it meets criteria. But one of the issues with um, early intervention is that You've under developmental delay, you only have to have an impairment in one area, which includes communication, and it can be expressive or receptive communication that counts as one area, but you need to have what they refer to, and I'm going to read their wording for you as a sequence of supports from multi, multiple professionals. So basically the problem is that you have to have more than one therapist involved. And with DLD, you might not. It might be, you know, I'm using gradation marks, just a communication problem, a communication disability. So that means that you don't have an OT and you don't have a physio. And that makes it hard to apply because they will say, well, you don't actually need early intervention because you don't have a disability that's across several areas. And then for the over seven. Um, criteria for the actual disability criteria, one of the issues has been um, in the name. Because it says developmental, they think that it goes away. So it's not permanent and therefore it doesn't meet criteria from their perspective. So that's essentially, I think, what's often happening. Um, We've heard a lot of reports of denials, particularly based upon the lifelong uh, criterion of the disability criteria. Uh, I think we'll link to that disability criteria. in yeah, we the, can absolutely do notes. that. Yeah, yep. it's worthwhile knowing what they actually are, because then you know how to argue it, basically, when you're applying.
1: Fantastic, that's really great advice. I think that um, the the point you raised around the early intervention or the EI um, funding is really critical. Uh, often. People hear developmental language disorder and think that it's just only the language difficulties. But of course, we know from the literature, um, children with developmental language disorder can often have comorbid, you know, fine and gross motor difficulties and would need a physio or an OT. Um, They might need support with their emotional regulation and are seeing a psychologist. Definitely. Yeah. But a speech pathologist might just be the first port of call for these families, because we're the key diagnostician, you know, the person that makes yeah. the call on whether the child has developmental language disorder, whereas if it was as a part of a potentially multidisciplinary team assessment, mm-hmm. um, you know, they might be identified as having these other areas of need as well, and probably yeah. by the sounds of it, um, much more readily able to access that early intervention funding.
0: Potentially, yes. Because mm. that seems to be what's happening in EI, is that because there's not more than, more than one professional. Often at the time of application, there's not more than one professional.
1: That's a really so interesting point.
0: they might deny it on that. And then if you go under the disability criteria, then they say it's not permanent. So that seems to be the two, the two denial points, I guess.
1: Yeah. Mm, that's, I think that leading to that point about the disability, I wonder if... Um, you know, there's some potential resources. I might I may even link them below for, mm-hmm. for example, the DLD fact sheet for Rattles might be a good resource for parents to use with some literature, which isn't always accessible, but might be helpful um, to yeah. justify that. Yes, it is, a, it is a developmental condition, but it does not go away. So, yes, um,
0: there has been advocacy just so that parents know that we have yeah. been doing quite a lot of advocacy at Speech Pathology Australia with, directly with the NDIA saying that DLD and also um, childhood apraxia of speech, that they are both actually communication disabilities and that they have significant functional impact and they are lifelong, Mm. that they do affect you for a significant portion of your life. And that the importance of EI and early intervention uh, to help basically to try and remediate some of those impacts
1: absolutely. I think, you know, if we can get that early intervention happening, we'll have much better chance of putting, you know, structures in place, supports in place and enabling a better positive, you know, positive outcome for the individual as well as the family that's sitting around them. And I think that, you know, it's often the families that are feeling that pinch. Uh, I know that There's been some uh, health economic studies done in the DLD space in Australia, but one thing that it doesn't always capture, and this is what we hear time and time again from families, is the out-of-pocket expense for families. A lot of the health economics research looks at expenses for government, um, but often these children aren't accessing a lot of government-funded support and services, so it's really hard to get that true representation of the economic impact. Uh, of DLD um, when a a lot of parents are just paying for it themselves or aren't able to access those services, which has, you know, long-term ramifications for schooling and employment and beyond. So I I think the more people that apply, the more we'll hopefully have a opportunity to increase awareness and, you know, challenge those uh, application processes.
0: Yeah, I agree. Fingers crossed. Um, (laughs) And the other thing is that it is sometimes about, having a go um Mm and it can be it is it can be a taxing process um i don't say that lightly but that the more that it is sort of coming up people come actually planners and lacs and early childhood intervention partners are coming up against this and that the more they're exposed to it the more they might actually learn That, oh, okay, or I saw somebody, you know, or I met with a family that was having the same difficulties or similar difficulties. And this was, does that make sense? They become more familiar with it as a concept.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. It's about advocacy and education, isn't it? Um, Definitely. And it sometimes is, from my experience, people that you work with, um, you know, they know what they know, but until we actually, you know, overlap and share information, um, you know, nobody knows everything, so by actually uh, applying and discussing and sharing about the condition, we can help not just ourselves, potentially other people in the future as well. So that leads beautifully, I guess, into my next question, which is, Well, you know, we've talked about the process and families, you mentioned it's a taxing process um, or potentially taxing process. What do families of people with DLD need to do to apply for the National Disability Insurance Scheme?
0: So it is really important that you are clear about which criteria you're applying under. So are you trying to go for the early intervention criteria, which is usually for under seven, that's kind of automatic for under seven, but if you're over seven, sometimes they actually will also consider you under EI, or are you going under disability criteria in there's kind of pros and cons, I guess, of both. As I said, with the early intervention criteria, you have to prove that there's a sequence of supports from a multidisciplinary team. So you do need to potentially have several areas where you are needing additional support or preferably receiving that additional support so that Mm -hmm. there can be a report from multiple professionals. And um, that's really what they want. They want... Uh, A lot of supporting evidence, so what they call evidence, um, they've got evidence of disability for the disability criteria, but even for EI, they want to know, they want a diagnosis of something, generally speaking. And so it's also, I guess, important that, as you are talking about, you explain what DLD is, and it might be about using particular wording. So calling it a communication disability, and it actually is. That's not untrue. But it's, we don't necessarily talk about it in those terms and therefore the NDIA still thinks of it as, you know, you just have some trouble talking. And we know that it's not just trouble talking, it's significant impacts on the rest of your life. And it can be significant impacts acro- not across multiple areas but also for, you know, the entirety of your schooling and then having those impacts upon um, employment and future study options and things like that. its And social, you know, all the things that we all know about. <laughs> um, so that's something else. So to basically have a think about the functional impact of this communication disability. So come prepared with examples from your life that are specific to your family, but are perhaps things you might not necessarily think about like adjustments that you make or things that you do that if your child didn't have DLD you wouldn't be doing so like an example is you know everyone loves sport everyone's involved in sport except the child with DLD because they can't follow the pace of the game in terms of the instructions or you know following what's happening at the time and so or they can't do you know their family runs a karate studio but they can't do the classes because there's too many instructions you know things like that that you wouldn't necessarily think about but they are adjustments and they change what happens for that child because of their communication disability Um, the other thing is that there are there's actually a list of things Uh, it used to be on the NDIS website, and it's been moved, but it actually came out of there's an independent council that provides information for the and recommendations for the NDIS. And so, back, 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 in the very first days of the NDIS, they created this very large document. And at the very end of this very large document is recommendations. So, it's the document is about um, allowing people to live an ordinary life people with disabilities to live an ordinary life and at the end they have something called the key um, lifespan indicators. And these are basically, they've kind of, they've actually charted in a basically a big table what they would expect people of different ages to be doing and what people of different ages with a disability are not doing or not able to do. So as an example, in that I think it, they've um, done it from 5 to 12 is sport, sport's one of the things. So if your child isn't playing sport, that's something to refer to. Or if your child isn't doing something from these key lifespan indicators, you can say, well, you know, most children their age, or most adolescents their age, or most people their age, are able to do this and this and this, but my child's not because of this disability. And then also charting that as, what effect does that have on you as a family? They actually really want to know. It's quite. It can be quite personal, and this is what we we're talking about before. It can be a difficult process, and it can be. It's very personal. But planners and, you know, local area coordinators (LACs) and early childhood intervention partners, which are ECIPs, they need to actually know how it affects you and how it's affecting your family. So increased stress if you have to work part-time because you're taking your child to all these appointments or because you're having to, you've made the decision that you need to homeschool because there's, you know, issues that means that schooling's not possible, things like that, that are everyday impacts of this
1: disability. Absolutely. I think um, you brought up a really key point about the confrontational aspect of it. And I think that it would be naive of us to deny that it's just going to be a form to fill in and submit, isn't it? You know, it's, it's more complicated no. than that. And I think the other challenge is, is, and perhaps this is me, but I think most um, clinicians and families are probably the same, is we're often very positive. You know, we're often yeah. people who positively frame progress um, we positively frame the outlook for the child. That we often talk about the the benefits of um, intervention, and we talk about things in a way that is uplifting and engaging, and, and ultimately to ensure that you know DLD is just a part of life. I often talk about the rich tapestry of life. Everybody's a little bit different, and DLD is just a part of uh, what life for uh, you know a certain percent of people, but. The process, it sounds like, is actually asking people to kind of flip that a little bit and say, well, actually, this is what, you know, you're, you're doing, but what would you be able to do? And what are the differences in terms of support needed? And it's probably a slightly different mindset, I'd imagine. I'm thinking of the families I work with. You know, we generally are pretty upbeat and pretty positive. But thinking about those difficulties could actually be, you know, a big challenge that might take a lot of self-reflection in order to get to the point of pulling an application together. that be fair to say.
0: I think that is very fair. And I I think that's also why I wanted to bring it up today is so that families aren't shocked or they're not ill-prepared. Like it's better to go into it knowing it's going to, you're going to have to have some potentially difficult conversations and talk a lot about and think about really, well, actually how is this affecting us? How's this affecting us as a family? How's this affecting, you know, my child and what what could they potentially be doing if they didn't have this communication disability? So having a think about your aspirations for them. So that's another thing that they um, ask about is the goals and aspirations. But before you get there, you really need to think about the difficulties. And because that is what it's about um, in terms of getting access, it needs to be talking about the most not necessarily extreme, but the 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 worst day, the sort of the, the things where you think, oh, we had this experience and it hasn't happened for a long time, but it was really bad when it happened. So, for instance, uh, in Kinder, they went on a little, you know, excursion just to the local playground or whatever mm-hmm. and they didn't know where they needed to be. So they ended up actually just following somebody else that they knew and they ended up on a main road. And therefore, you know, that's terrifying (laughs) as a parent. But that is something that's really significant to the NDIA. They would take notice of that. That would be something where they think, oh, that's a really significant safety concern. So it is thinking sometimes about some things that have happened that have been really negative in the past that you have, you don't want to ever happen again and also potential things in that kind of area. Um, it is c- quite negative and it doesn't affect necessarily how your, your child's going to be worked with in terms of when they're a client of somebody, when, you know, therapists are very positive and that they will still work with you as, you know, to improve your child's life. It's, we're not sort of saying that you're going to, to do all this and that it's all going to play out that way. But in some ways, you need to kind of think about the worst case scenario to get the funding because you're trying to say, trying to make a case for yourself and for your child that if I get this funding, if we're able to put these supports in place, then this won't happen. Then we will have better outcomes. Mm -hmm. Then we will be able to, you know, have this um, child go off and do the TAFE course that they want to do or, you know and become a sports broadcaster or whatever it is that they want to do.
1: (laughs) That they achieve their aspirations.
0: Exactly. Exactly.
1: And sometimes I'm thinking from what you're saying as well, it might be thinking about the fact that there might be things you want to put in place, but there may also be, in fact, things that are put in place. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. that you might be doing. For example, um, an adolescent with DLD might be regularly working with a psychologist. So you may yes. have already identified that as a need because you're proactive and you're thinking about, you know, the supports that need to be put in place to help them um, succeed. But it's, it's you know, it's thinking about the things that they need as well as the things that they may already have in place. Would that be fair to say?
0: Definitely. So if you've got any kind of... Um anybody working with your child in kind of any capacity and that includes like if they're having to have additional tutoring if they're having to have you know counseling if they are going to you know um any kind of classes at school and it's not that they will pay just to be clear they won't pay for the classes at school but it puts together a picture of Mm -hmm. my child we're needing to put in extra supports for my child that other children don't need that we are needing to go above and beyond and this child my child needs extra support and so it it might be that at the moment look we're only able to do this because financially um we can only kind of afford speech pathology or psychology we can't do both so we're having one term on of speech pathology and then off and then a term with a psychologist and then we switch or does that make sense like all that kind of stuff absolutely is really important to say it's also where You need the support, but you've had to make some compromises in the support of the child. That's really important as well.
1: The point, I'll just go back to you raised as well, was that the NDIS doesn't cover education-based supports. And I think that sometimes we become so focused on our school-aged population, uh, often because they're being identified during their schooling years or as they're approaching schooling years, we, we tend to get very focused on those school-based supports. But it's really critical for our listeners to remember that the NDIS won't be funding specific school supports, but it's about enabling access to the community, uh, being a part of a family, it's all of the functional impacts of the disability, but the fact that they need an adjusted curriculum is a piece of evidence, I think, is what you're saying. Yes. Yeah. yes. Yeah. Um,
0: and just to, yeah, to clarify that this is, again, with the terminology that's really important to use, is to talk about your child's inclusion and participation. In their community and family, so an example might be if they are very behind academically, perhaps with their reading and writing. That's a piece of evidence, but you're not. Does that make sense? That's not necessarily going to be listened to as much as if you're saying that they're not able to take their driving test because they can't access the book, or again, they're struggling with the instructions and it's just it's too. Too much of a cognitive load there's too many things going on at once so they're really struggling and they can't learn to drive and that because that affects their independence and again if we look at the key lifespan indicators that would be one of them would be you know kids at about 16 17 they're learning to drive so
1: Absolutely. it's that
0: difference between your child's life and your family's life and their like i said inclusion and participation in their community and also sometimes depending on their age their independence So there's other things to do with, um, so for instance, if your child is also having trouble with fine motor things, um, that they can't put, they're struggling to do their own shoelaces. And that's an issue because you would expect a seven-year-old to be putting on their own shoes.
1: Great. From what I'm hearing and thinking about how it puts together for families but also the clinicians that might be listening in and have support we're looking at it through a lens of here's the challenges we face but what's the actual flow on or the functional impact of that in day-to-day life Yeah.
0: yeah yeah because planners and LACs and to a lesser extent ECIPs um they they don't necessarily understand what it is mm-hmm. and they don't, they don't like you think about the fact that, okay, well I need to actually allow Johnny an extra half hour in the morning mm-hmm. because I know that we're going to have to have potentially a battle about X and Y before we get into school. Mm-hmm. And we're going to have to, you know, have a pet talk or have a meditation or do these things to actually, because they're anxious about going to school. So they're things that you're doing that you don't even think about you're doing. <laughs> but they are pieces of evidence and they're things that people can understand. So it's like often we might talk about a birthday party. Everybody understands about a birthday party. So if your child's not getting invited to a birthday party or they don't have a lot of um, social connections because they're struggling with the language around those social connections, that's evidence. And that's something that everyone can understand.
1: Excellent example. Thanks for that, Erin. I think that brings us beautifully to our next question, which is there's clearly a lot involved, isn't there? Um, Are you able to tell our listeners a bit more about the planning and meeting process? You've used a few different acronyms as well, so I'm hoping maybe you could talk about who can help them, you know, who's involved in the process. Sure.
0: So I catch myself sometimes. I'm so used to NDIS speak, so I'm sorry. (laughs) No, that's okay. Um, Okay, so again, we'll talk about it. We'll split it off into if it's the early intervention or EI process or it's the over sevens um, mostly process. Uh, So for early intervention, there is what's called early childhood early intervention partners. Now, it's really important to know who these people are in your area. There are basically the different organisations who've actually gotten the tender. So they've basically gotten the contract from the NDIA. So they they work for the NDIA, but kind of one step removed almost. So you don't, if you are under seven, you don't actually apply through the NDIA directly. You need to go to your local early childhood, early intervention partners for whatever organisation that is. And again, we can, um, there was a list, I'm hoping it's still there um, on the NDS website where you can actually find who the partner is for your area. So we can put a link into that. Um, So you would go to, you'd actually approach the partner organisation and then they will arrange, um, usually it's a phone call sometimes and then they might arrange a meeting. COVID's kind of made things a little bit different. So, um, you know, I'm not 100% clear on exactly what's happening and it might depend on your area, but they are the people you need to go through um, to apply and you will have a planning meeting with them. So I'll kind of go to the other side now. Um, you would apply directly through the NDIA. So you can um, request an access form and then you would fill out the form. And then um, you will probably, for DLD, you'll need to submit some supporting evidence. So that's what we also sort of talked about before, about any therapist reports that you have or Letters from your the GP or paediatrician about um, anything that they're saying they need support around or you know diagnosis of things, even if it's delayed, X or Y, that's the kind of evidence you'll need to submit with your access form. And then, after they'll make a decision. So on either side, if it's EI or if it's over seven, they'll make a decision. So. the EI side of things, again, this is very dependent on the partner, the organisation. Sometimes they will um, offer some short-term supports and that is very vague, but it does, it's different kind of depending on the organisation. So they might work with you and your family for a period of time, um, but they have said that they might say, no, we don't think that you um, are able to access the NDIS. Um, Alternatively, you might, they might say yes, and you might get a short-term plan. When you're going into that planning meeting, it's really important if they have, they have said yes, basically. So once they've said yes to the access request, either through the ECIP or through the um, directly through the NDIA, if you're over seven, then you go into a planning meeting. Um, it's important to know that you can take somebody with you. So you can actually, your therapist can attend that meeting If they have the time and if um, there may be a cost to you for that appointment which will not be covered just to be clear won't be covered by the NDIA Um, but it may be worth it if you feel that that would be helpful Um, Mm -hmm. and you can also ask for a disability advocate so there's a um, range of disability advocates in each state. again um, we might put a little link Mm -hmm. to that Um, and you can basically have somebody with you who is supporting you through this process because it can be quite intense. The other thing is, is that if you are, you get given a meeting date that isn't convenient for you, or it's not convenient for the person that you want to take with you, you can ask for a different day. So you don't have to just accept what you're given. You can say, you know, I can't do it that day. We've got another appointment or, you know um, that doesn't. If it doesn't give you enough time to get all your evidence together, uh, you can also ask for a later day. Something else you can do is if you you do want to have the meeting on that day, but you have a um, your therapist doesn't have time to get to write the report. You can say that the therapist report is coming, and they can give you a, a, like extra time after the meeting to actually submit the evidence. So that's kind of just some things to know is that you actually do have a bit of power in the situation. It might feel like you don't, but you do um, because it does need to be convenient for you. And that's the other part about that is that they're not allowed to do, um, unless it's requested by you, they're not allowed to do planning meetings on the phone anymore. So that's what was happening a little bit before is that uh, somebody had a phone call and they didn't realise that was their meeting So now it's actually a set meeting. Um, For EI, you often go into the offices of the partner, whereas for over sevens, it's usually in your home or it might be in a, you know, you might organise it for it to be in a particular office space. Um, But again, you can ask. So sometimes uh, some schools are allowing them to happen actually at school that just, you know, there's some flexibility again around how that sort of happens. So anything that kind of allows you to be a little bit more comfortable and sort of feel like maybe it's, it's on your turf, so to speak, or um, you've got somebody with you who you feel can help you to um, state your case and can help you even just to sort of stay calm and, um, Not forget things, like sort of that's another thing just to think about is to have when you're going into your planning meeting to actually have some things written down because it can be quite when we're under stress or we sort of feel in an intense situation, we can forget things. Um, Our brain shuts down a little bit. That happens to us all. So (laughs) it's really good to have some stuff written down, particularly, like I said, some of these examples from your life and your family's life about the functional impact hot
1: dld wish the listeners could see me nodding because i'm just hearing you know (laughs) hot tip after hot tip after hot tip thinking yes great because that's what people are wanting to hear erin i think Mm -hmm. they want to know you know they can you know they look at the process and it does seem big and overwhelming but then what are the what are the little um you know suggestions tips that they can take in to uh, empower them and, and be able to advocate for their loved ones and get the best possible outcome at the end of the day.
0: I'm using the word child, but it may be you know the, the person yeah. that you're caring for. Or yeah,
1: makes sense. <laughs> and we and we talk a lot about people with DLD. I think sometimes it sounds yeah. a bit funny to refer to you know a two-year-old as a you know a person with DLD, but you know they are a person and they may have DLD. But yeah, I think we try to be as inclusive in our language as possible because I'm really hoping over the next few years we'll see much more of a movement with our adults with DLD, with increased recognition, you know, and increased, increased awareness, both within Australia and internationally, you know, it's going to be those voice of the adults with DLD that I think that'll be, um, movers and shakers one day. Well, at least mm. I hope so.
0: Yeah, that's the thing. So just, um, kind of replace the word child with you, but does that make sense? Like if you're going to planning meeting for yourself, or if you're going in to back to somebody else. It's sort of, Mm. it's the same in terms of you can request that extension, you can request, um, you know, if you don't feel comfortable, for instance, having someone in your home and you'd prefer to do it in a different spot, you can negotiate around that sort of thing, that kind of stuff, that still applies. It's not just for parents.
1: Absolutely. Uh, In an ideal situation, what sort of supports can a family of a person with DLD apply for? We've touched on Little bit, but I don't know if you want to expand any further?
0: Um, I guess just to be aware of what is reasonable and necessary and what would meet reasonable and necessary criteria. So, this is the, the kind of uh, the guidelines, I guess, or the rules around the types of things that the NDIA will fund and won't fund. So, one of them is that part of the reasonable and necessary criteria is that it's best funded by the NDIA. So if it's something that is educationally based, it's often not going to be supported. And so it's something, it's thinking about, well, yes, okay, it might be something that the school has recommended, but is it actually something that we would use at home? Is it something that would help to support their inclusion or participation at home or in their community? So an example would be... um, Perhaps a a device if they're um, using alternative or augmentative communication or a pod book, and so that's not like yes they would we would want them to use it at school that would be great, but you're also you're actually using it you know you're going to go to the football with your family and you're going to ask for a meat pie with it and you're going to go to watch your sister at swimming classes and you know chat to your mum about what she's doing all that sort of stuff it's you're able to actually ask for things that you will use in a community context um so obviously speech therapy will be a big one um that i think a lot of people would want to ask for uh you can also ask for those other supports that we were talking about so i think we touched on it briefly but if your child or yourself there are mental health impacts of having these communication difficulties. That is also something to bring up with the NDIA that kind of counts, I guess, as an extra area. Um, And again, those supports would be funded hypothetically because as long as they're related to your disability. So that's something to keep in mind. So if you break your leg, you're not able to get your fit, you know, And you need to have physio, that wouldn't be funded through the NDIA because it's not actually related to the disability itself. But if you needed physio because you had low muscle tone, that might be
1: yes. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm just thinking of an example with, um, you know, some young people I've worked with recently, you know, we we wanted to work on social skills because they were struggling at school to engage and have peers, but that's not Mm -hmm. any reason why they couldn't engage in social communication at the park or to to participate in a team sport. You know, they're transferable skills that are really going to be advantageous no matter where you are, whether it happens to be school six hours a day or, 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 you know, out with family on the weekend. So there's lots of things to consider uh, about what you might be targeting and how it might be used, not just at school.
0: Yeah. And I think it's really important to, as I said, if It could be something that you might use at school or that is a transferable skill for school, but it's really important that the NDIA will not fund it if it's about school, School. that makes sense. So you'll need to think of it in a way of how does this apply at home or how does it apply in the community, how does it apply in real life, so to speak. Yes the only other thing i was going to say is just around equipment you can also potentially ask for equipment if um again that is something that is going to uh, assist with their participation so an example might be if you are using alternative communication um a device or a um you know any any range of things so it might be if for for instance you are using um perhaps sign language there is actually provision for um classes Mm -hmm. to be um applied for through the ndia so something to just keep in mind is that if you're asking for classes the other thing is that you could potentially as an example swimming classes the ndia would look at it as being what is the kind of everyday cost of that so like most children need to learn how to swim or most people need to learn how to swim so they would go this is the cost of a standard swimming class and if you're saying well no but my my child or i need a particular swimming class that has smaller class sizes or i need one-to-one to help me to understand what i need to do and to help me with my anxiety perhaps in the water or whatever then they might fund the difference between the two mm-hmm. classes, if that makes yes,
1: sense. Yes, absolutely. So if hypothetically a person with DLD's application is successful through the NDIA or um, through their early intervention provider, how soon can they start to access their funding? Is it a pretty quick turnaround? And then what, what's the general upkeep? Do they need to keep reapplying? How long does their plan last for?
0: So unfortunately this is a bit of an, it depends. <laughs> yes,
1: of course.
0: So once you've had the planning meeting, that's generally what people want to know is, is how long from the planning meeting to the money. Yes. And the simple fact is that that is where there's a lot of variation. And the reason is because it's going through. So it usually goes from the LAC or the ECIP to a planner. Um, and then the planner takes on board everything that they've said they look at all the evidence and then they determine what they're going to put into the plan and that can sometimes take a while so it's worth um sort of chasing that up if you haven't heard anything i'm going to say within three weeks after your planning meeting it's worth just chasing just touching base with whoever you met with um and saying you know hey what's happening (laughs) and it's not that you'll necessarily get the money just to be clear within three weeks but it's that they should be making a decision within three weeks yeah so um you should at least know if it's coming and then there's sort of a period of time and you need to have a think about this is actually something else just to think about before you go in um is about how you, if you do get a plan or your child gets a plan, watch how you want to manage your funds. So yep. do you want to be self-managed, which means you are managing it yourself, in which case the money would actually come into come to you directly. So they often recommend you set up a separate bank account. That's just for this NDIA, these NDIA funds. So that would be if you're self-managed. If you're plan managed, the funding doesn't ever go to you, it sits it's put aside for you and then what happens is that you need to also organise a plan manager. And these are third parties. These are completely, um, they are NDIA providers and, but they're not employed by the NDIA, if that makes sense. So they get paid by them, but they're not actually part of the NDIA. So they um, basically organise the money for you and they'll pay all your providers or organise um, to pay for your equipment you might get approved for in your plan so that would be something you would need to organize and sometimes that's I've seen that happen a little bit where there's been a a gap there because someone didn't realize they were plan managed and they needed to organize a plan manager so that can sometimes be a little delay so knowing how you're getting managed if you're the third option is NDIA managed and this means that the NDIA basically keeps the money and they um, there's a portal where your providers and they have to be NDIS registered. Uh, you can only use NDIS registered providers, whereas with the other two options, you can use anyone you like. Their provider will actually go into the portal and um, request payments and organise all of that themselves. So you don't have to kind of do anything. So they're the three options. So it's also kind of keeping in mind NDIA managed is often the fastest because it, the money is just there. You don't have to organize anything else, whereas the self-managed, like I said, there can be a little bit of a, um, not delay, but you know, you've got to organize things. You've got to organize a login for yourself for the portal and you've got to often, like I said, they do want you to have your, a separate bank account for it. You don't have to, but that is a recommendation. And then with plan managed, you definitely have to organize this whole kind of third person to manage the money for you.
1: Yeah. Okay. So it could be three weeks between chasing up, and then sometime after that, you know, in the next few weeks, maybe before you're actually accessing that, that funded support.
0: Yeah. And again, also having a think about the time of year. So obviously across holidays, so the sort of December January period, it's there can be delayed. some delays. Yeah, because people are on holiday, and so they're not working. And so because it's going through several people, it's that. It's kind of it has to get off someone's desk. They have to actually look at it. They have to submit it in on their side of things. Then it has to get, you know, it might go to somebody else who then has to tell you. So it sort of can take a little bit of time. Um, and then the other thing to know is that how long your plan is for. So as we talked about before, sometimes you can have a short term plan. That's only six months. Generally plans are for 12 months. So you will need to um, have what's called a review meeting, uh, coming up sometimes they're called early and this is again where you might exercise your kind of power within that process. So if it's been called after nine months and you think, no, I've still got a lot of funding to use, you know, I've still got we've got another two months worth of progress we could be making um, with this speech pathology, then you might say, no, or it's just not convenient for you, you know, you're moving house or whatever's happening. Um, you can say, no, I want it to be later. So they will try and usually call it, they can call it up to three min- months ahead of time, mm-hmm. but it should be coming up to that year point and usually at least six weeks before. But not always. Again, it's there's a lot of variation. I'm sorry, I sound really vague, but it's true. No, it's just, just the reality just, of it, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so it really depends on the LAC or the ECIP. Mm-hmm. Um, and it also, like I said, are they on holidays? Sometimes... You won't have the same person, so it needs mm-hmm. to be allocated to somebody else within that organisation and that takes some time, things like that. So definitely, again, if you're coming up to, so say you're a month out from where you, you sort of should be having your plan review and you haven't heard anything, again, I'd be chasing up and going, hi, you know, where's my meeting, all that kind of yeah. stuff. But it's also for you to know when you might need to approach therapists for reports because there will need to be reports for that review meeting. Yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah. Okay. And I guess the other flip side to all of this is, and I apologise, I didn't put it in, but I'm thinking of it as we discussed, um, that there's going to be instances where people won't be successful with their application. Is yeah. there a process that people can appeal?
0: There is. So there is um, what's called a review of a reviewable decision. Uh Which they are looking into that wording. We we all said it's a bit ridiculous, and they are looking at that. (laughs) But um, because you have a review meeting, which is standard, and then you have a Mm -hmm. review of a reviewable decision, so you can actually Mm -hmm. basically appeal. You can say, um, you know, I I think that either I, either myself or my child, does meet criteria. Um, Sometimes they'll ask for additional information, so they might want another report from somebody or. They might, as we were talking about before with EI, that's often where they'll say, well, you need somebody else involved, um, yeah. that kind of thing. Um, something to know is that, again, with reviewable decisions, they need to acknowledge that they've received that application
1: mm-hmm. within
0: three weeks. Mm-hmm. But the actual, when they actually review it, is, can take quite a bit of time. Okay. So that can be several months. Okay. Several That's
1: months. good for our listeners to know as well because if people are going through or they may have already submitted their application and are only hearing this podcast maybe now, you know, they might mm-hmm. um, want to be able to use the information to reflect in an appeal process as well. And I imagine that a lot of what you're saying would probably be very relevant not just for the initial application but thinking about the way in which you're framing it for, um, you know, that review of a reviewable decision. Yes. Um, <laughs> absolutely
0: um and i guess the only other thing to keep in mind is even if you do get a plan but it's not enough so mm. say you only get 10 hours for a whole year and you think that's eh, not really enough is it to kind of mm. get anywhere so you can also review that you can ask for a review okay. to actually have more funds
1: okay put in.
0: yeah so keeping in mind um it's easier to do that the faster
1: you yes. get that in.
0: So if you, for instance, you, um, you get your plan on the Friday and you think, Oh, this is, this is not what I asked for or, or it hasn't covered the things that we really need. Yeah. Then you put in for a review as fast as you can. Or even if I it's can. something simple, like, you've been put as self-managed and you didn't want to be, you wanted to be something else, definitely ask for that straight away or as soon as you possibly can. Definitely within the first couple of weeks, because if it's something small, like changing a plan management aspect, they might not have to go to full review. Mm -hmm. Anything where they're adding in extra money, it will generally be a full review. But again, getting that ball rolling as soon as you can um, will work in your favor because it can take a long
1: time. That's really, really, really good to know. Even I, um, there's some pieces, you know, I felt like I've got a fairly fairly good understanding of the NDIS, but I've definitely learnt a lot from what you've uh, shared and I hope the listeners have too, because I'm sure um, everybody's still working their way through the process, aren't they? It's been a few years now, but it's still um, uh, evolving, changing, adapting, Uh And hopefully through advocacy efforts through Speech Pathology Australia, and um, I'm hoping the DLD project will be able to raise awareness as well so that potentially our families will have an easier time of navigating the NDIS application process. I start to bring us to a close, but in your opinion, what do you hope to see in the future for DLD in Australia and around the world?
0: I would like it to be recognised
1: as... <laughs> so would we.
0: I know that sounds really simple, but I'd no, like it, it to be um, recognised for being the really significant communication disability that it is. Yes. Um, and so that it's not such a fight for recognition and services. That would be wonderful.
1: Yeah, absolutely. We could not agree more. Um, and certainly we'll be following up with more information for particularly families, but I think even as a clinician myself, if you're not doing it all the time, sometimes it can be really hard to get your head in that space quickly. Um, And particularly when, you know, word on the street is it's really challenging or it's difficult. it, It might be something that people are put off by doing. So I'm hoping by providing this podcast and providing some information and maybe even some success stories, people will probably be more, or hopefully be more inspired to actually give it a go because by applying, we'll be able to spread the word and hopefully see some positive outcomes for our young people and older people (laughs) with DLD in the future.
0: Thank you so much, Erin and Sean, for that very insightful look into the NDIS application process. Wow. (laughs) so much to take in but you know we have reached out uh, directly to the NDIA just letting you know to increase their understanding of DLD and we will keep you updated on those efforts Um, Also, Erin mentioned a number of resources which we have made available on our website via our blog,
1: and we've also provided a link to the blog on our social media channels. You can keep informed about all things DLD at our website, thedldproject.com, and if you know someone who could benefit
0: from this episode, please feel free to share it widely with everyone you know. We really want to get the word out there and help as many people as possible. Because you know together we can increase awareness and understanding of DLD in Australia and we can do it today. So let's make that happen. Thank you.